Welcome to the Gateway Church Podcast. We're so glad that you're here. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. We, this weekend, are continuing our series entitled The Real Jesus. And uh, when I tell you our topic for the day, some of you might be slightly inclined to go, wah, wah, okay. But if you'll just hang in with me, uh, I believe by the end of the message, it's possible the Holy Spirit might cause some things to come alive in your heart, in your spirit. And so uh, if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. What we're talking about today are the feasts. You may have heard them called the Jewish feasts or the Feast of Israel or the biblical feasts. They are all of those things, but they are not just those things. I'm going to show you in just a minute at the beginning of Leviticus 23, what God calls the feast. But here's what I already know. Anytime a pastor, especially a Gentile pastor, is teaching and says, we're going to teach on the feast, uh, one of the thoughts is Preston's teaching on the feast, and now he's going to tell us we have to celebrate the feast. Okay, no, I'm not. I, and I'm going to show you why. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, listen to these words from Paul. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon festivals or ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come and Christ himself is that reality. Now, this is a passage of scripture that's used to often say, see, this is why as Gentiles we shouldn't or, and don't celebrate the feast. And here's what I would say. Just because you don't have to doesn't mean you shouldn't. And even if you don't, it doesn't mean you should at the very least dig a little deeper and mine the beautiful theological relational richness that can be seen in the feast. Now, if you're thinking, why do the feasts even matter to me? Let me give you kind of a, a line to think about. The feasts are signals and signs that help us understand what's on God's heart, as well as showing us God's salvation plan for man. But that's not the only reason the feasts are important. The feasts are important because they're important to God. Let me, let me show you this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, the very first chapter in your Bible, God makes a very strong statement. I want to show it to you. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times. This is the word moed, moedim, sacred times. Not just to mark out day and night, God's saying, hey, here's why I put the moon and the sun, the stars in the sky. It's not just to let you know when it's night, no longer day, when it's day, no longer night. It's to also to mark out the sacred special times that I establish. 
and the days and the years. Now, if you're in Leviticus 23, let me show you the same word that God used in Genesis 1. Now remember, the principle of first, the first, when God uses something for the first time, he's making a statement about it. He uses this word moed, it's significant to him. He's pointing at the sun and the moon and saying, I put those bad boys up there. And one of the biggest reasons is to mark out some special pre-appointed times that I establish. Okay, so it's an important word to him because these days, these moments, what we're about to see, these feasts are important to, did anybody just hear that screaming? <laughs> That's the greatest sound in the church right there. Can I just say that? Like I, that, that is, it happened in the last service. That is unbelievable. Here's why. Would you rather them be hating the presence of God in the house of God? Like that is just, I, I, that is, thank you, Jesus. That's so great. Leviticus 23 verse four. Listen to what God says. These are the feasts, watch this, of the Lord. Okay, this is really important. God doesn't point at the feasts and say, these are the Jewish feasts. While they have been called that and are called that. And they are. He doesn't say these are the biblical feasts, even though they are. He says, these are my feasts. These are the feasts of the Lord. He doesn't stop there. Holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. Here's this word again, moedim. And it literally means to schedule an important appointment, to have a meeting. Incidentally, if you've ever heard the, the verse of scripture that is often quoted as more of a phrase, how can two walk together unless they're in agreement? Anybody ever heard that before? Okay, Amos 3, verse 3. God uses the exact same word in Amos 3, 3, Moedim, to say, how, he, this is what he's literally saying. How can two walk in agreement unless they first schedule an appointment to do so? Okay, think about the rich implications for us personally. How can two? Well, let's just use two, God and man. I'll personalize it, God and me. Preston, how can the two of us walk in agreement unless we have scheduled appointments together? How about for Jew and Gentile? That's another two. How can Jew and Gentile, as one new man, walk together? in agreement without scheduled special appointments together. Okay, this is a really important word to God. He uses it on purpose. Let me try and illustrate this. Uh, maybe you dated somebody uh, or are presently married to somebody that I would term a perpetual celebrator, okay? Let me describe what this type of person is like. They're the kind of person that comes into the room you're in on some seemingly random day and they say, congratulations. And you're like, what, what did I do? And they say, happy 11th. I'm like, wait a minute. We've been married nine years. 11, as a man, I remember the day you were born and the day we got married, everything else is a little bit foggy. Isn't it usually the woman that kind of, I know some men remember, but let's just be honest, guys. We don't always remember everything we should. 
She says, happy 11th anniversary of our first kiss. <laughs> Incidentally, it's the same type of person that when you're dating, they mark off every week. Happy ninth week together. Okay, now some of us look at that and say, that's just cheesy. Let me redeem it. No, it's not. That's romantic. And God is just such a being who celebrates every special moedim, special moment. Troy, who, who preached last week, did an absolutely phenomenal job, was telling me that when he and Jen are preparing the kids for the feasts, and the feasts you're going to see in a minute are broken down into the spring feast, therefore, and then the fall feast. Every time at the beginning of the feast, they tell their kids, Troy will say, remember, the expectation of an appointment is a meeting. Don't just do these things for God. God set these dates to meet with you. This is one of the reasons the feasts are so special. He says, these days are special to me. And on these days, I want to celebrate with you what I did for you all those years ago. And I want to do it every year. So let's walk through the, we're going to start with the spring feasts. There are four. Uh, I'm going to walk through them. I, in the amount of time that I have, I don't have the ability to, to go very deep on each of the feasts. I just want to kind of give you the, the nuts and bolts, and then we'll talk about the fulfillment or the future fulfillment of the feast. All right? First of the spring feast is called Passover. Many of us know what Passover is. Leviticus 23, verse 5. Read it with me. The Lord's Passover. Interesting that he calls it his. Now the Passover, the Lord's Passover begins at sundown on the 14th day of the first month. Now, let, let's talk about this for a minute. When was the first Passover celebrated? The night that the children of Israel left Egypt, right? And how did it go down? The angel of death was coming to take the firstborn. And God said, if you will kill a spotless lamb, without breaking any of its bones, take a spotless lamb, kill it, and do what with the blood? What did God say? Apply it to the doorpost, right? And then what happened when someone applied the blood of a spotless lamb to the doorpost? The angel of death passed over, okay? Simply put, Passover is the celebration of when death passed over. Let's keep going. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is the next one. Verse six. On the next day, God says, the 15th day of the month, you must begin celebrating the festival of unleavened bread. This festival to the Lord continues for seven days. And during that time, the bread you eat must be made without yeast. Okay, here's, I remember this when I was in college. I was working at the Arizona Biltmore. And during Passover, one of the things the Biltmore used to do and, and they probably still do this, is, is they would reserve a portion of the hotel for Jewish families to celebrate Passover and families could pay kind of an all-inclusive price and everything was taken care of for Passover. And one of the things that the resort had to do is they had to establish a completely separate kitchen. And here's why. 
because of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. One of the things you had to do is you had to rid your entire home of yeast. Okay, sounds a little, a little odd. Like, I mean, you're scrubbing down the kitchen. There's no, have you ever heard that, that saying, carbs are from the devil? I think that's where this possibly came from. Because you're not, you're not allowed to eat any leavened bread, bread with yeast, bread that's risen for the week. It's a seven day feast, but it went even further. It's just not just eat bread that is unleavened. It's also strike your entire home of yeast, okay? Next, next one. And remember, we're gonna come back around and talk about the fulfillments of both categories, the spring feast and the fall feast. The next feast of the spring, the feast of first fruits, verse nine of Leviticus 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. When you enter the land I am giving you and you harvest its first crops. Okay, and then he goes on to explain what he wants. Here's what would happen. This was three days after Passover. And they would take a, a sheaf of wheat and tie a cord around it. Then they would take the first fruits. They would take the lamb. They would take the wine. And they, they would take the sheaf. And the priest would bless the first fruits. Okay? And the principle is, and if you've ever heard my mentor, Pastor Robert Morris, teach on the principle of first fruits, this is where it comes from. When the first was set aside for God, what happened to the rest? The rest was blessed. Okay? Incidentally, this is where Holly and I, my wife, got our oldest middle name, Elizabeth, which means consecrated to God, set aside for God. Because it was almost like we knew what type of sons we would have after her and we wanted them to make sure we got them blessed. Just, just, no, I'm just kidding. That was just in case they turned out to be like daddy. And they didn't. They're amazing boys. Uh, but the principle is when the first is set aside for God, the rest are blessed. The principle, the, the feast of first fruits is where that comes from. Here's the next feast, the feast of weeks. This is the last of the spring feasts. Leviticus 23, verse 15. From the day after the Sabbath, the day you bring the bundle of grain to be lifted up as a special offering, count off seven full weeks. Keep counting until the day after the seventh Sabbath, 50 days later. Okay, everybody remember that number, 50. Okay, 50 days after. All right, that's when Feast of Weeks, 50 days after first fruits. And then he goes on, uh, keep counting until... 50 days later, then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. This was called the waving of the omer. Um, and this is what would be done with it. Uh, they would take the wheat, they would take this package, and they would wave it up, down, forward, backward, left, and right. And that was to signify that the providential goodness of God was extending to the ends of the earth. Okay? Now, incidentally, the Feast of Weeks uh, is the anniversary of the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai to Moses. Okay? This is, this is the, the commemoration of the giving of the law when God gave the Torah to Moses on Mount Sinai. Okay? Now, let's quickly go through, I'll start back over with the Passover. Uh, let's walk through the fulfillment. 
all right? So uh, a couple of you have fallen asleep. If someone next to you has fallen asleep, you don't have to elbow them. And let me say this. Some of you might feel like, wow, we're moving really fast through this. I can't catch all this. I don't understand what this all means. And let me just submit something to you. The goal isn't to fully understand everything all at once. Here's the goal. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you one thing. Catch one thing that ignites in your heart, that deepens your love for Jesus, and in part changes the way you walk with him, okay? The goal isn't to try and keep up and catch everything. I don't want you to see this like a 10 course meal of which you have to eat every bite. We're moving really fast through a lot of stuff. The goal is to see this like a buffet, all right? And how many of us love a good Vegas buffet? You know what I'm talking about? It might be 60 bucks, but I will eat $300 worth of that crab. This is just a buffet, okay? So let's, let's start back with Passover, the first of the spring feast. Let's, let's talk through this for a minute because many of us have heard of Passover and that's, if, if we know any feast, that's the one we know the most. John shows up and says, behold, in John chapter one, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Right? That's what John the Baptist says about Jesus, the Messiah who has come, the God who's come to save us. Do you think that John woke up that morning and went, Father, today's the day. The Messiah is going to reveal himself today. This is the day. And I am the herald in the wilderness. I mean, I have a role to play today. I'm, I'm going to be the clarion call that draws attention Father, you know what I'd like to do? I want to make sure that the people's hearts connect to the Messiah. Father, everyone loves animals. And I would like to pick an animal that would cause the people to be more endeared to the Messiah who has come. And I wonder if John, out of all the animals, tried to create a top three list of animals that could be compared to the Messiah. First, maybe he came up with the giraffe at the top of his list. Because I mean, think about it. The giraffe's long neck, people can see his face from far away. Just sounds like a good messianic animal, right? Then maybe the second on his list was the chihuahua. You know, the sweet, beautiful little puppy whose bark can be heard through your entire neighborhood in the middle of the night. And then maybe the third one was just kind of a kick in like the lamb just because they're sweet and they're everywhere. Do you think that's how it really happened? That John just kind of stumbled upon the lamb? No, here's what you have to remember. The earliest followers of Jesus all knew he was the Passover lamb and they communicated by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in scripture to make sure we knew as well. Let me show you. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 19, he's talking about the price God paid for you. And he's trying to paint this picture of just how extravagant the price God paid to redeem you really is. And he says, it wasn't mere gold or silver. That's in verse 18. Then he says in verse 19, it was the precious blood of Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He says, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says, just in case, you know, there are people who didn't catch 
that Jesus is the Passover lamb, Paul, who I love, gets right to it, says, Christ, our Passover lamb. He just says, listen, Jesus is our Passover lamb. In other words, Jesus, Yeshua, Hamashiach, is the fulfillment of Passover. Passover, all these years, has been pointing to Jesus. That's what he said in Colossians 2. Jesus is the one all of these point to. They're shadows, but he's the one casting the shadow. They all point to him. Now, does anybody know something important that happened on the same calendar day as the beginning of Passover? Anybody know? Something tied to Jesus? He was crucified on Passover. The spotless lamb was killed without the breaking of bones. Incidentally, remember, both thieves on each side of Jesus had their bones broken. He didn't. The spotless lamb was to be killed. and His bones were not to be broken. Jesus was crucified. Not coincidentally, I might add, on Passover, letting the whole earth know, I am the lamb who is slain for you in your place. Here's the next feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And just two things I want to bring your attention to about the significance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The second is about Jesus. The first is about us. The Feast of Unleavened Bread reminds us the powerfully poisonous effect of sin in our own lives. Jesus says, I'll, I'll read it to you. Uh, and, well, Paul says, uh, but Jesus also talked about the leaven of the Pharisees. First Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says, Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? Okay, Paul takes a little, and if you don't know what, what the leaven is, it's literally yeast. A little bit of yeast in bread causes the whole batch, the whole piece of dough to rise, just a little bit. The Feast of Unleavened Bread reminds each of us of the power of sin in our lives. Think about it. Satan fully understands this. That's why he didn't say to Eve, eat the whole tree. Think about it. He didn't say that. He said, just take a bite of the fruit. Why? Because a little can affect the entire whole of my life. The unleavened bread is a beautiful reminder. I'll personalize it. Preston, playing with a little bit of sin is like playing with matches that can burn an entire house down. A little bit of leaven goes a long way. And so seven days a year, God says, I want you to go without leaven. Now, why is this celebrated? Because that night when the children of Israel were rescued from Egypt, the idea is they, they were rescued so quickly that night that the bread didn't even have time to rise. That's where it comes from. But it also points at Jesus. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and there is no sin in him. 1 Peter 2 talks about that as well. Okay. How many of us have heard Jesus described as the bread of life? Okay, let me go a little bit further. He's not just the bread of life. 
He's the unleavened bread of life. Here's why that matters. If he were the leavened bread, he couldn't give you eternal life. He couldn't die in your place because he had sin. He is the spotless, sinless lamb of God. Feast of Unleavened Bread reminds us the power of sin, but also the power of Jesus overcoming sin on our behalf. Here's the next of the spring feast, the Feast of First Fruits, okay? Question, anybody know anything? Remember we said First Fruits happens three days after Passover. A little Bible trivia. Can anybody remember something significant that happened on the same calendar day as the Feast of First Fruits? Anybody remember? What happened three days after the crucifixion? The resurrection, right? Okay, let me show you. Paul connects. This is not a coincidence. Think about it. He could have come back any amount of days after. It's not a coincidence that Jesus was raised to life from the dead on the same day as first fruits. And Paul, the apostle, makes sure we understand this connection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, but now Christ is risen from the dead. Such a great statement right there. Christ is is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Those who have died. Here's another way to say it. Jesus in John 6 verse 40 says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at that last day. Jesus, I'll personalize it as saying, Preston, you can trust and believe because you believe in me. You can trust and believe that there is a day coming where I am going to give you life eternal. Even if you die, if your temporary tent called your body dies on this earth, you can trust and believe I am going to give you as one of my followers As a son of my father, I am going to give you life eternal. And Preston, here's how you can know, because I went first. I was raised to life on first fruits as the first fruit. This is not a coincidence. God didn't just randomly pick three days. He's proving a point to every believer in Jesus. You can bank on this because he went first. He overcome death, hell, overcame death, hell, and the grave. And this is why he is able to give you life eternal. He went first. Then we have the Feast of Weeks, the last of the four spring feasts. Anybody remember the number I told you to remember about the Feast of Weeks was what number? 50. Anybody remember... Something that happened in the New Testament exactly 50 days after first fruits, after the resurrection. The Holy Spirit was poured out. Acts chapter 2, right? Okay, so I, I want you to, I just want to point at something because part of what I'm trying to do in this series 
I'm not trying to show you new things. These actually aren't new things. These are old things that have been there on the pages of your own Bible for hundreds of years. So I'll give you a little example. Remember I told you at the beginning of this series that some of the richest treasures in God's word are found in some of the deepest of caves. And so we just have to be willing to dig into God's word to find that pearl of great price. Remember me saying that? Okay, well, let me show you an example of that. Remember, uh, the Feast of, of Weeks is the time where uh, we're celebrating the commemorating of the giving of the Torah, the law on Mount Sinai. Does anybody remember what happened at the base of the mountain that day? While Moses was up getting the Torah, anybody remember what the people were doing down at the bottom? Yeah, yeah a golden calf. And do you remember what God's response to that was? People got to die. This, this will not stand. I will not be co-worshipped. You're not going to worship me and an idol. But does anybody remember how many died that day? Let me show you. Exodus 32, verse 28. The Levites obeyed Moses' command. If you go read the context, Moses has told them, these people got to die. All right? Now let's see. And about 3,000. Everybody say about 3,000. About 3,000 people died that day. Okay. Question. Bible trivia. Anybody remember in Acts chapter 2, after the Holy Spirit was poured out, anybody remember after Peter preached, how many got saved? How many experienced new life? Let's read it together. Acts 2, 41. Peter just wrapped up preaching. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about, how many? Are you kidding me? Like, do you think that's a coincidence? Like maybe it is a coincidence, but do you really think it is? About 3,000, the same exact words? Okay, what could this mean? Is it possible that God has hidden a little statement within the words of his word, using about 3,000 who died the day the law was given and about 3,000 who experienced new life when the Holy Spirit was poured out. I wonder if a possible statement the God of the universe might be trying to make goes something like this. The law alone brings death. But the Spirit brings life. It's always been there. About 3,000, about 3,000. See, the beauty of the feast is not just ha what happened that day. Remember this. If, if you forget mostly everything of this message, remember this one one-liner. Special things always happen on special days. Incidentally, as we transition to the fall feasts, and we're going to breeze through these, I'm only going to cover two of the three because I'm going to do a whole message on the Day of Atonement here in a bit. Um, so we're going to cover two of the three. But let me just quickly say, draw your attention to the fact that the major events of the first coming of Jesus all coincide with the feast. 
Now think about it. It's crucified on Passover, right? Not a coincidence. Then three days later, first fruits, he's raised to life as the first fruit. Then 50 days later, on Shavuot, you might call it Pentecost, both mean the same thing, pointing out the number 50, the Holy Spirit is poured out. Okay, in the same way that the major events of the first coming happen on the, the days of the feast, there are many that believe the major events of the second coming are going to align with the fall feast. Just like the events, major events of the first coming align with the spring feast. Now, I'm just throwing that out there to you. They haven't happened yet, but I wouldn't be at all surprised. Here's why. Because God is detail-oriented. Now, hear my heart. I'm not trying to tell you that the next feast we experience, Jesus is coming back. The trumpet's going to sound. Hear my heart, okay? I'm just trying to tell you these fall feasts haven't been fully fulfilled yet. And part of that is keeping that expectation. So let's look at the first of the three fall feasts. It's the Feast of Trumpets. Verse 23, the Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. On the first day of the appointed month in early autumn, you are to observe a day of complete rest. For those of you who say, I think these feasts are weird, do you think a day of complete rest sounds weird? No, it will be an official day for holy assembly, a day commemorated with a loud blast of a trumpet. Clearly why? We get the name Feast of Trumpets. Now, this was the beginning, the 10-day walk-up to the Day of Atonement, which is the most solemn of the feasts. And I, don't, I can't spend too much time here because I'm already a little over time, but here's, I'll boil down the, the Feast of Trumpets. When God in Exodus came down on Mount Sinai, they heard the sound of a trumpet blast. Now, I understand that one of the, the meanings for a trumpet in scripture is a call to war. I know that. But it's also a clarion call that God is coming. So they hear this trumpet and God shows up on Sinai. So this connection between a trumpet and God showing up is important. Think about it like this. Can you imagine if every morning of your life, in your heart, you heard the sound of the blowing trumpet, whereby your day began calibrated to the thought, he is coming again. What would it change about your everyday life if every day started in your heart with the sound of the trumpet that preceded God always showing up? Feast of Trumpets has not yet been fully fulfilled, but that does not mean it has lost its significance. I told you Day of Atonement. I'm going to do a whole message on that. Let's finish with the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 33, And the Lord said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. Begin celebrating the festival of shelters or booths or tabernacles on the 15th day of the appointed month, five days after the day of atonement. Now, here's why it's called the festival of shelters, tabernacles, booths, all meaning the same thing. Because when the children of Israel were rescued from Egypt, what did they live in temporarily? Tents, temporary shelters, okay? So for this week, there, there's the establishment of a temporary shelter, and this is the big party, the big celebration. It's so big, if you want to do a little reading this week as homework, go read Zechariah 14, how seriously God takes the, the Feast of Tabernacles. He's very serious about it. 
and it is the party of all parties. This is the celebration, okay? Now, one of the things you need to know is during the celebration of, of tabernacles, a couple things happen. The priest would take water from the pool of Siloam and take it up to the temple. And the reason is it was signifying that when Messiah comes, in the same way the waters cover the sea, when Messiah comes, the knowledge of God is going to cover the whole earth. So everyone, every Jewish person in that, that day, and to this day, you know water is important during the Feast of Tabernacles. Another thing that, that happens is people would take torches, flaming torches, and they would go around the perimeter of the temple and they would put them in the ground, lighting up the temple. This was signifying that when Messiah comes, he's going to be a light to the nations, which obviously includes the Gentiles. Okay? So remember, this, even though this hasn't been fully fulfilled, I want to show you something Jesus says in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7. Let's, let's read it together. Um, uh, well, let's, let's go to trumpets. I, I got to breeze, breeze through this. Uh, I told you the trumpet. I told you uh, atonement. Uh, here's what Jesus says in John 7. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted. Now he goes into the temple in the middle of tabernacles, Feast of Tabernacles. He goes into the temple to teach and listen to what he says. Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Okay, so you've probably heard that before, but the context is in the middle of tabernacles where water is very important. Everybody knows the role the water is gonna play. Jesus comes and says, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart, speaking of the Messiah. John chapter eight, verse 12, Jesus goes further. It says, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. How many of you have heard that before? Okay, but the context is in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles when people had put light around the temple to remind everyone that the Messiah will be a light to the whole world. Jesus says, I am in the middle of the lights. He says, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Okay, Jesus knew he was the fulfillment of all of the feasts. That's why Paul said what he said in Colossians chapter two. Now, I know some of you are proud of yourself that you didn't fall asleep through this last 40 minutes and I'm proud of you, okay? But I wanna connect the dots as to why these are so beautifully important, not just to God, but should be to us as well. I'm gonna ask my wife to come out. She's back in the back here. Uh, she hates being on the stage, literally abhors it, okay? So this is a big moment for us. She, she said, uh, after the Thursday night service, she's like, I think this is the first time in eight years I've, I've stood on the stage with you. And then she's like, and it's going to be the last time I stand on the stage with you. But remember at the beginning of the message, I talked to you about the Hebrew word moedim that God used to say, these are special appointments that I have established where I want to meet with you. And I wanna celebrate these every year together. Okay, I wanna illustrate this. 
August the 4th in the year 2000 is a very special moed, moedim. It's a special day to us because it's the day where I proposed to the girl of my dreams. And I want to help you see that part of the celebrating of the feast is one part reenacting to remember the miraculous beauty and power of God and what he did that specific day. So I wanted to try to illustrate this to you. I want you to see how on August the 4th, I had flown to California to ask her parents if I could marry her. On my way back to Dallas, she was living in Phoenix, I was in Dallas working at Gateway. And I stopped by in Phoenix and I snuck into the room where I knew she was gonna be. She'd just come from volleyball practice, her hair was sopping wet. She had no idea I was coming. And I walked into the room and I got down on one knee and I grabbed her by the hands. And I said to her, I quoted Ruth chapter one, entreat me not to leave you. Don't ever ask me to leave your side. For wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your people are going to be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you lodge, I'm going to lodge. If anything but death separates me from you, I want something far worse than death to be God's punishment for me. I know that right now I have more school debt than I have annual income. (laughs) But if you'll just hang with me, my heart is to show you the world. And I make a commitment to you on this day that I'm gonna study you for the rest of your life. You are my favorite subject. And by the time I die, no one on the earth is going to know more about you than me. I want to spend the rest of my life holding your hand. Will you marry me? Of course, you know, she said yes. She collapsed on my knee. She didn't actually say yes for a couple minutes because she was sobbing. And, and Can I just say something? Because this, this was said after the Thursday night service. Gee, thanks, Preston, for doing that in front of my wife because that's not how mine went. <laughs> Can I just tell you that's not the point to bring glory because I'll, I'll just tell you that's not how mine went either. Over the last 21 years since I used my words to propose to my wife, I've spent thousands of hours using my mouth to communicate words. So it didn't go like that. There were a lot more nerves, but that's not even the point. I wanna ask you a question. Was there anything weird about what you just saw me do? Celebrating, reenacting my proposal, was there anything weird about that? Was there anything cheesy about that? That's for you to decide. (laughs) But if you ask that girl, 
There ain't nothing cheesy about that. Let me just say, things go very well for me whenever I pull that little trick. I walk into the kitchen and just go. She doesn't think it's cheesy. Do you think it's irrelevant? It's a part of who I am. That is a Moedim. That is one of our special days. I want you to grab the communion elements that you were given when you came in. Because whether you realize it or not, you have been in part celebrating a portion of one of the feasts since you gave your life to Christ. Now, take out the bread. Many of you would look at this and say, this is called communion. It, it is. That's, that's what you call it. But it's not just communion. You have to have more context than that. Let me ask you a question. The, the quote-unquote first communion happened on the night of the Last Supper. And the Last Supper was celebrated on the night of what? Passover. The night Jesus was crucified. And one of the things you have to know about Passover, the way it's been celebrated for hundreds and hundreds of years, not just by Jewish people who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but by every Jewish person. During Passover, one of the things they do, there are three pieces of bread after the meal, okay? And they're covered up. Interesting to note, I wonder if that has anything to do with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the reason I would say that is, in Passover after the meal, it's the middle piece of bread that's removed from the covering. And that middle piece of bread, think about it, God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, who's the one in the middle, so to speak, okay? That middle piece of bread is taken out of the covering, it is broken, it is blessed, and it is eaten. It's the afikoman, and then it's hidden. Half of the broken piece is hidden somewhere in the house. And the, everyone goes to look afterwards. Everyone goes to look for the afikoman, the missing piece. And there is a prize for the person who finds the bread of Passover that was temporarily hidden. Tell me that doesn't sound like Jesus. And when, when in Matthew, he, he describes what happened that night. He says, after the meal, Jesus took the bread. Understand something. He most likely wasn't just reaching for the thing closest to him. Oh, somebody give me some bread. It is entirely possible, not just plausible, that the middle piece, Passover that night, he pulled out the middle piece, and when he said, this is my body, which is broken for you, he was pointing at the middle piece of bread that had been celebrated and consumed for hundreds of years by even Jewish people who don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus took the bread and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Every time you eat this bread, I want you to remember me. Let's take the bread together. And then we have the cup. And in Jewish tradition and culture, the wine symbolizes two things blood and joy. One of the things Deuteronomy chapter 18 says that Moses points at the Messiah and says the Messiah will be like a Moses. 
And rabbis for hundreds and hundreds of years have believed that when Messiah comes, he will do the things Moses did. Well, think about this. Moses turned the water, one of the miracles God did, and one of the plagues, Moses turned water into what? Into blood. He turned the water into blood, right? Rabbis for centuries have taught that when Messiah comes, he's not going to turn water into blood because when Messiah comes, there will be joy, even more than judgment. Messiah will come and turn the water into wine. Isn't it interesting that the first miracle Jesus does is he turned the water into wine. Now, here's what you have to know about Passover. There are four cups during Passover. The third cup is the one that comes after the meal. And every cup has a name. And the name of the third cup is the cup of redemption. Jesus takes the cup, quite possibly the third cup after the meal. See, we call it, as Gentiles, the first communion. This is a part of Passover. He takes that third cup and he says this, probably pointing at the cup of redemption. Contextually, historically, that's most likely what he was doing. He says, this is my blood. It's my blood in the cup of redemption. Every time you drink of this cup, remember me. He's pointing at the blood of the spotless lamb of Passover saying, I am he. But I wonder if that's not all he was doing that night. In Jewish tradition, there's something that happens when a young man wants to marry a young woman. He, of course, the fathers arrange it, but part of the ceremony is the son, the, the young man goes to the young woman with a goblet of wine. And he says to the young woman, the wine in this cup represents the very blood of my life. If you drink this cup, you will be mine and we will be married. I wonder if Jesus wasn't just saying, I am the Passover lamb, I wonder if as the bridegroom, he wasn't taking that cup and in part proposing to the bride saying, if you drink from this cup, you will be mine and we will be married forever. This is why Paul says, when you drink this cup, don't do so lightheartedly. Examine yourself. The bridegroom proposed and you accepted. Jesus took that cup that night and said, this is my blood which was shed for you. Every time you drink this cup, remember me. Let's take the cup. I want to invite you to stand. And as you stand, I want our altar ministry team to come to the front. If you could just hold on to your cup. We're not going to be having uh, what we typically have at this point in the service, a song of worship. Because um, sometimes I think we get too focused on the song rather than the act of worship. 
You might be saying, Preston, I was really looking forward after a romantic communion like that. And the Holy Spirit hit me with some things. I just want to respond. Let me say this to you. Here's how we're going to respond with our worship. The bride is going to go out there and live as the bride preparing for the return of its bridegroom. Our worship is out there. I'm gonna pray a blessing over you and we'll, we'll be dismissed. God, thank you for love. You are love. You are a measure of love that cannot be ex experienced anywhere else. And your love for us is so extravagant and that you would ever want to set appointments where we could meet over something special to you. That you'd ever want to meet with me is mind-blowing in and of itself. And Jesus, that you would prove your love in, in laying your life down for us. Holy Spirit, I pray that as we leave this place today and wherever they're watching online, I pray that we would live as the bride of Christ, preparing for the return of our bridegroom, showing the love of God everywhere we go. May love, capital L, have its day and may today be that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Have a great week.